You're listening to the Maximum Enthusiasm Podcast, the exploration of life fully optimized with Megan Hotman. Hey, Maximum Enthusiasm Podcast fans, welcome back. Today's episode is brought to you by my friends over at Runner's High, the only running specialty store here in Golden. You can check them out on the web at runnershighco.com. They've got a shop here in Golden, Colorado, and they just opened a second location in Morrison, Colorado, right there at the base of Red Rocks Amphitheater. So why do I love the folks at Runner's High? Well, Deb and Ken are an incredible couple. Both have extensive running backgrounds and pedigrees. They have a wealth of knowledge and experience. They are the ones that helped me back in 2015 when I started training for my first Ironman and was getting back into running. They put me on their treadmill there in their store and did a running gait analysis, helped me figure out what I needed for both training shoes as well as race day shoes. And I'll just share that they got me hooked on the Hoka 1-1 for training days and on the Newton lightweight running shoes for race day. And this protocol has worked beautifully for me for the last three years. Uh, It's also my only source of running and training nutrition, both during and after. I buy my Scratch Labs hydration mix at Runner's High, and they also just got me hooked on the Tailwind Nutrition Vanilla Recovery Mix, which I use after my workouts. So they are fantastic. They will absolutely help you get sorted with your running shoes as well as apparel, and they sell some pretty amazing yoga pants too. They are offering a discount to our listeners. If you mention that you are a Maximum Enthusiasm podcast fan, they'll give you 10% off running shoes and 20% off apparel. You can also just mention the last name Hotman, H-O-T-T-M-A-N, and you will be a friend for life with Runners High in Golden. So again, check them out, runnershighco.com. the Maximum Enthusiasm podcast. My guest today is a good friend of mine, Jennifer Lorenz. She is a fellow cyclist. We've been riding bikes together for years and she has helped me with so many of my own employment law issues. Jennifer Lorenz, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. It is March 18th when we are recording this and we are in the midst of literally hour by hour and day by day changes that are happening with the coronavirus. And the real reason that I have had Jennifer on the show this morning is because of her expertise in employment law. Um, everyone right now that owns a business or works for a business is, is scrambling. And so um, Jennifer, is it, is it fair to say that, that this is evolving on a daily basis? Yeah, definitely. I know that we've discussed, but on March 11th, the state of Colorado passed a new a new law, a new bill called the Colorado Help Act, which is the Colorado Health Emergency Leave with Pay Act to address some of the developing issues that employers are experiencing with the, you know, coronavirus and the shutdowns that a lot of employers are facing. So, 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 and since you dug right into that, let's go straight into that. That's a brilliant opening topic. Can you tell us more about what that new law requires employers in Colorado to do? So it only applies to certain employers right now. It doesn't apply mm. to everybody. And it's, I mean, we can provide a link to the actual law. Absolutely. Um, it applies to employers who are engaged in the field of leisure and hospitality, food services, child care, education at any level. So if you're involved in education, so if you work in the cafeterias, if you're providing transportation, um, it's covered. Home health care workers, um, nurses and people who work in nursing homes and people who operate a community living facility. So the new law requires that the employers give People who work in those areas, up to four days of paid sick leave, if that employee is suffering from flu-like symptoms and they're going to be tested for the coronavirus, but that paid leave ends if the employee receives a negative test. Okay, so it ends at either the earliest of the four days or the negative test. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So So if they test positive, you're still capped at that four-day time period. You are still capped at that four-day 
time period. And so if you, if your employer offers you as part of your benefits package, paid vacation or paid sick leave or PTO anyways, and you haven't exhausted all of your sick leave, PTO, whatever it may be, the employer doesn't have to offer you those four days. Okay. You have to exhaust your paid, your offered paid leave anyways. But say you've offered all of your paid time off and you are working in childcare and you're suffering from flu-like symptoms and you're really concerned. Your employer then has to offer you those four days, but only if you've already exhausted your offered benefits. Okay. So PTO and sick leave, uh, like employment benefits, pretty much come first in terms of primary, secondary, and so on when we're talking about options. That comes first. That has to be exhausted first before the employer needs to go to plan B. Yep, exactly. Okay. Okay. Um, with respect to an employee who is calling in and saying, hey, I'm feeling these symptoms, as you just indicated, obviously there needs to probably be pursuit of a test to determine if it's positive or negative for the coronavirus. But in the meantime, what are the requirements of the employer to notify the other employees? Because obviously that, that treads into HIPAA territory. Um, or does the employer have to also then think about shutting down their business if they think that they may have had an employee who was you know, sick or infected on site? That's a really good question. And it actually, you know, goes into a lot of different categories. So one, you have to maintain the confidential. If you have an employee who calls in as the employer and says, hey, I'm suffering from flu-like symptoms, I'm getting tested, you can absolutely, and you probably should, let the your co-workers or the employee's co-workers who came into contact with that potentially infected employee know that, hey, somebody who came in contact with our office, you know, may, may have, you know, the coronavirus and they're being tested, but you cannot disclose any information identifying that employee. That's huge, right? That's really, really huge because that's one of those areas that we could easily stumble into, especially in smaller workplaces. So thank you for clarifying that. And then, and then what's next? So a lot of employers, what they're doing right now is they're compiling information regarding employees who have actually tested positive and then employees who are suffering from potential symptoms but may not yet have had the test or it may not have tested positive. And that's for their own records to determine, you know, who do we need to be notifying and who should we be looking out for? Because a lot of industries, you know, like I work in a law firm, I don't come in contact with that many people every day. So it's not a significant of an issue for somebody in my position. But say you work in, for example, a bike shop and you have customers coming in on a daily basis and you work in close proximity with your coworkers. At right. that point, if you have somebody who's suffering from flu-like symptoms, including the shortness of breath, you want to you want to let those other people who that employee may have come in contact know, just so one, they're aware, and two, if they too suffer from symptoms, they can get tested. So if we have that scenario, and I, I love that you brought up the bike shop because I've actually been talking to a lot of bike shop owners just giving the space where I you know, spend most of my time and my energy. Um, what about then, do you have to post something on the door that says, hey, we had an employee that uh, went home sick with symptoms, or B, we had an employee that tests positive, or C, worst case scenario, does the bike shop owner or small business owner actually have to close their doors if they have a confirmed case? I haven't heard of anybody being required. I haven't heard of being required to post something on on you know the workplace door. I think communicating the information is really really important, and then it becomes a case by case basis. Really, okay. um, do you need to shut down that? You know, that depends on, is it an employee who, one, tested positive, and two, is coming into contact with other people? Again, you know, if I tested positive, the likelihood that I see somebody or come within six feet of somebody on a daily basis 
isn't actually that high, but you know, in a bike shop, it might happen. What a lot of companies are doing, what a lot of brick and mortar stores are doing right now is they are limiting their service hours and they're allowing curbside pickup and delivery. And I've also seen, especially more in the retail space, uh, you know, we had here in Colorado, all restaurants, bars, and, um, you know, coffee shops as of yesterday closed for in-house dining or in-house service, if you will, through May 11th. And there's been some speculation that that may also be imposed somewhat soon in the retail space, just because people are, are, the government's trying to force people to stay home and not be out and about. But right now with retail open, there are some spaces that are adopting a uh, policy of like no more than five or six customers in the store at one time to try and maintain that social distancing or that, that separation, Mm -hmm. um, we're not seeing any specific guidance from the CDC about about that. That's just kind of a best practices that people seem to be adopting. But what are your thoughts on that, given that, you know, there's still a chance of exposure? Do you think that that at least shows an employer doing their very best to minimize the exposure? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really good idea, especially if you have a large enough store or environment where you can limit to, you know, five or six people and make sure that people aren't coming you know, in close contact with each other. And I, you just mentioned the CDC, which is really, really good because they have some pretty good guidance online right now regarding uh, um, workplace policies that employers should be developing and cleaning guidelines. And they're also available on OSHA's website as well. So OSHA is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And they have, if you go on their website, they have a lot of information that employers can use um, to help develop an infectious disease preparedness and response plan. Oh, nice. Yeah. And they also have some information on cleaning, cleaning workplaces and what you should be doing and should not be doing, you know. It's different based upon every store, what cleaning measures you need to be taking. You should absolutely, regardless of this, but especially because of this, you <laughs> cleaning, you know, doing a thorough clean of the workplace. But there are additional guidelines depending on the type of workplace that you should follow. And that's all available on the OSHA's website. Gotcha. Well, that's all super helpful. And I think obviously more cleaning is better than less cleaning and having ample cleaning supplies and trying to tackle that and cleaning credit card machines and keyboards and high traffic areas as often as possible is, um, you know, those are best practices and the OSHA website link we will definitely post so people can refer to that. I want to go back real quick to the four day mandatory pay in terms of the categories you listed, because the first thing that came to mind when you were listing the categories, some are very obvious like daycare services, but you said something about um, leisure. And I was immediately thinking, does that law even apply to bike shops or to sports retail? You know, that's a really good question. Leisure and hospitality typically, typically means, you know, hotel industry, um, maybe ski resorts, things of that nature. But does it or could it apply to bike shops? I would think think maybe not because that's more of a retail industry. But I don't know that I would want to jump to that conclusion right now. And at the end of the day, I mean, what the CDC, OSHA, the... um, you know, Department of Labor are all encouraging is just use what you think is best practices right now. Use common sense, follow the CDC guidelines, and be hyper vigilant and careful. And I think, at least my observation, I, I belong to an organization called Entrepreneurs Organization. So I'm watching a lot of entrepreneurs across a lot of different arenas. And then I'm also pretty intimately involved with a, several local bike shops here. And I'm watching people do what they think is best, but I'm also observing this trepidation and fear that if they don't do quote enough or more, there's this worry of potential lawsuit or litigation after this whole thing has settled down because of course by then we'll have the clarity of hindsight and people are really worried that if they don't do it perfectly or don't do enough or 
or don't, I, you know, it, it, it's a moving target, but there is this fear of, of being sued for something. And so, you know, what do you think a, a, an employer's biggest exposure is right now? Um, what, what's the worst thing that they could possibly be sued for in the midst of all of this? Would it be just simply failing to um, send someone home who's sick or would it be failing to actually shut down if they, if they knew or should have known that someone had been infected there? That's a really interesting question. I think it would be somebody who intentionally disregards a known safety issue. So, yeah. And then also, if somebody uses this, otherwise an excuse to discriminate or, Uh, yeah, to get rid of somebody or do something uh, that they shouldn't be doing. Because no matter what, at the end of the day, the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, those... Title Seven rules, they still apply and you have to apply all of these new issues that are related to coronavirus equally against all of your employees, regardless of their race, religion, gender, ethnicity, national origin, any of these protected classes. So for example, sadly, where this is coming up most frequently is where you may have a Chinese employee. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't discriminate against them because they're Chinese. That's right. Just given the suspected origin of the virus, I could see, um, I could see why you're raising that issue. The other thing that came to mind is you have an employee who's demonstrating some sort of sickness symptoms. And if you're going to try to start scaling back staff, is it discrimination if you start firing people who are sick, whether they've tested negative or positive? Is that considered discrimination? So that's a really interesting question too, because typically under the Americans with Disabilities Act, you cannot fire somebody who has a protected medical condition or a known medical condition, um, it's illegal under the ADA. So the it has to be, um, let's see here, it has to be a, um, a medical condition that's actually covered under the ADA. And that okay. has more of a permanent, so ADA covered medical conditions usually have more of a, long-term effect or it's um employers can't discriminate against somebody if they have a perceived disability right now it's arguable whether or not having the coronavirus is actually a disability covered under the ada because it Uh. is necessarily permanent but then if it's affecting your breathing and it you already have you know, maybe longer respiratory issues and it exacerbates them and it does become a long-term issue or a longer-term issue that substantially limits a major life activity, breathing, then potentially it could be covered under the ADA. And that would sort of have to play out over time, right? Like that Mm -hmm. would not be known at the time of termination. Potentially. So then what if the employee does, in fact, have a known um, longer respiratory condition prior to coronavirus and prior to the termination? So if you're going to get rid of employees, start laying them off, just, you know, if that's a decision that you have to make, you have to do it in a non-discriminatory manner. In other words do it based on business, you know, locking doors or, or business failing right now, or do it on um, business reasons and purposes, actual legitimate business reasons. Yep. Um, and, and have it be done in such a way that it could be based on performance or past performance reviews or, or even just an across the board issue, but certainly do not be hand selecting employees that you think are sick or are, in, oh in worse in worse health than others. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely not. <laughs> I, I would not would not encourage that by any stretch of the imagination. And you know, this isn't an 
excuse for employees to, you know, go out and rampantly act badly thinking that their job is secure and they can't be sure. Now, you know, if an employee does something wrong and you need to let them go and it has nothing to do with this situation, then you're safe. But if you're in a position where you're actually considering, you know, laying people off or letting them go, I would say think about what your options and alternatives are, because this isn't going to be, I hope that this isn't going to be a long, long term permanent issue. So if you have employees who work 40 hour 40 hours a week and they're hourly employees you know consider maybe cutting them back to 30 hours 20 hours 10 hours and know that in Colorado at least that employee can actually file for unemployment based upon the difference of the hours they're working after the cutbacks compared to the hours they were working prior to the cutback So let's pause there for a second because that's actually a really good suggestion and this is really, really important. So we have Joe who's been working 40 hours a week as as an employee Mm -hmm. and you offer to him, you say, hey, Joe, I really want to keep your job. Um, I want to keep you on staff. I don't want to have to let you go, but the numbers of our business right now, we're in the tank. I just, I can't keep you at 40 hours a week, but I can keep you on the payroll at 10 hours a week. I can hold your position and you can then go to the office of unemployment and apply for those extra 30 hours in the difference in pay. Yep, exactly. And do you have any sense of how long it would take for those benefits to kick in for people who are actually thinking about doing that? What does that logistically look like? That's a good question. Typically, there's at least a two-week lag time, typically. Right now, um, from what I heard yesterday, because there were so many applications for unemployment based upon what's going on right now and people getting laid off, the Department of Labor, their unemployment website was down for a little bit. So unfortunately, right now, I can't say definitively, but there's usually at least a two-week lag time regardless. But that would be, uh, when you say lag, it's it's a delay in the actual check coming, but obviously it, it would be retroactive to the date that the hours were cut, right? If you can just hang in there until the check comes. Yeah. And the determination okay. is made because at the end of the day, the department has to make a determination that you are in fact eligible for okay. employment benefits. So let's use the new Colorado mandate that went into effect yesterday on March 17th that said, um, you know, restaurateurs and bars and coffee shops have to be closed through May 11th. So let's just call it eight weeks. And let's say that we've decided to do this with our employee, Joe, where we're going to cut him from 40 hours down to 10. We want to keep him on the payroll and we don't want to have to terminate the position. He's going to go down and file for unemployment. And let's say that we get to reopen in full capacity on May 11th. Does that then conclude those benefits that he had applied for? Or how does the employer avoid getting dinged for going back and paying him 40 hours and also now having to you know, pony up the extra dough for those unemployment benefits? So once he starts working 40 hours again, you have to report this to the Department of Labor and Employment every, okay. I think it's every two weeks. So once he starts working again, the department will know, they'll get notification, you won't be required to pay him double. Okay. Okay. So in a most most likely scenario, granted you just said that the whole site went down yesterday, but if we assume that the unemployment services is able to kind of keep up with the demand, then really what we're looking at is Joe is going to have about a two-week time period where he's going to only be paid for 10 hours of work and that unemployment check won't have arrived yet, that he's going to have to get himself by before that check arrives and that will have been not post-dated, but it would be retroactive back to the day that his hours went from 40 to 10, right? Yeah, ideally, okay. yeah. Okay. Okay, so that's really helpful information because that's actually what this literally looks like in terms of preparing people what kind of savings and what kind of um, uh, you know getting by might be necessary for that two-week time period. And of course, we are not sitting here pretending to know anything about how quickly the unemployment office is going to, to kick out those checks. I assume that that's going to be a real quagmire down there in their office. Um, And there are other considerations too, you know, has the employee paid in the minimum threshold to be entitled to unemployment? 
Um, there are other considerations too. Are they an employee and not an independent contractor? Um, and the Department of Labor is just going to have to receive the information, process it, and make the determination. But with that said, collecting unemployment on reduced hours worked and reduced wages without being full-blown laid off is a potential option for employees and employers. And just to clarify, are we talking about hourly employees, part-time employees, and full-time employees? Or let's talk about exempt or non-exempt. Like, which category do they have to fall into to be able to, to do this? Uh you know, that's, so it would, I I would think it would have to apply to non-exempt employees because you only have to pay non-exempt employees for the hours that they actually work. That's not true for exempt employees. Exempt employees, so long as they worked within that given work week, you have to pay them. You can require, you can require them to take sick leave or PTO if they're not working, but if they're working, you have to pay them. And so just for those listening, what's the difference between exempt and non-exempt? Could you give us an example of each? Are we talking about like a salaried CEO versus a hourly bike mechanic at a bike shop or what are we talking about here? Exactly. So salaried employees are not necessarily exempt employees. And there are very specific guidelines on the Department of Labor's website regarding who is an exempt versus a non-exempt employee. So I think that example was perfect. So if you have somebody who's working as a bike mechanic in a bike shop and you know they're paid, even if they're paid a salary, they're still a non-exempt employee who is entitled to potentially collect overtime and who would be able to collect the difference in unemployment between the um, hours worked and not worked. But if you are an executive level, say, CEO, um, and you are a non-exempt, or you're, I'm sorry, an exempt employee, then you might not be entitled to collect the difference between the hours worked and not worked because at the end of the day, you're expected to work. You're expected to work 10 hours um, a week or 100 hours a week. You're salaried, you're exempt from overtime, and they have to pay you regardless. Gotcha. That is super helpful. That is really, really helpful because that can help employers decide what to do as far as cutting back hours for exempt and non-exempt and who might be able to apply for the difference in unemployment and who might not. Yeah, and again, Um, I would say look at the Department of Labor's website because just because you categorize somebody as salary, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're exempt. Sure. And people get that wrong all the time. Sure. Well, and just as a quick aside, you and I spoke recently about the um, imposition now of if you are trying to pay someone who really should be an employee as a 1099 independent contractor, that's now considered a felony, correct? It can potentially be considered a felony. There was a new law that was passed this past summer and it went into effect just January 1st this year. And based upon certain circumstances, you can potentially, you know, as the employer be you know, held to a felony offense, if you intentionally improperly classify somebody as a 1099 contractor and not as an employee. And I think that's a perfect consideration to have in the context of all of this, because I could see certain employers being really tempted to convert employees, especially hourly employees, into 1099 contractors to try and <laughs> keep paying someone, but also have them be working from home in a remote context and so suddenly thinking, oh, I can treat them as an independent contractor because they're no longer coming to my office. They're no longer using my tools or my resources. And if they still are really by definition an employee, that could end up being a very detrimental decision. So that's definitely something we want employers to be talking to counsel about before they make that that conversion decision. Um, And I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but that does occur to me as something that some employers may be considering. Um, I want to switch gears now and talk about this other new law that you shared with me that has not yet been passed, but it's a proposed bill that's gaining some support here in Colorado, which says that employers may actually have to pay employees for 14 days. Um, And that's, I think, in light of the many of these businesses being forced to close their doors. Is that right? 
oh, so you're talking about the Family First Coronavirus Response Act. And that is going to be potentially um, a federal House bill that is in front of the Senate right now. So the House voted on it, I believe it was this past Saturday, and it's in front of the Senate. But what it would require is it's basically considered coronavirus FMLA or family medical leave. Ah. And it would potentially, potentially, it's not, it's not a law yet, give employees up to 12 weeks of paid leave if, you know, it's actually, it's under a bunch of different scenarios. So say if you, if you in fact are suffering from coronavirus and you have long-term negative effects because of it, um, or if you're caring for a family member or if you have children or children you're taking care of who are out of school as a result, um, it would potentially kick in and allot you up to 12 weeks of paid leave. But again, that hasn't been passed yet. And there are a lot wow. of details that are still getting hammered out. And then there's, there's talk about who's it going to apply to. Originally, it was suggested that it was going to apply to all employers who had oh my. Yeah, fewer than 500 employees. Now there's talk that maybe it would only apply to employers with less than, or I'm sorry, more than 50 employees. And now there's also suggestion that it's not going to apply to employers with fewer than 25 employees. So it's something to keep a close eye on because oh my gosh. it could really, really help a lot of employees if it is passed. Well, and the question that that raises for me as I'm looking around at many of my fellow small business owners is that that can also be a straight path to bankruptcy for a business because mm-hmm. that could be an absolutely unrealistic and unattainable financial outlay. Um, and so what, what do employers kind of do with that information in light of the fact that that is potentially coming down the pike? Yeah, I, that's a really good question. I frankly do not have any clue right now because there's also suggestion that there's going to be some kind of um, government like bailout. Yeah, like a bailout to help fund this, maybe tax incentives. I don't gotcha. know. Yeah, it, it'll be really interesting to see. And it's hard right now because it hasn't passed yet. So there's a sure. lot of, you know, the bill's available online to read in its entirety. Okay. But, there were a lot of, I think there were like 40 members of the House who did not vote to approve it, claiming that they wanted to read it in more detail. It wasn't comprehensive enough yet or thorough enough yet, which I feel is probably arguments for, you know, when a lot of bills get shot sure. down. But sure. um, it's interesting because there's a lot of information available online about what it's supposed to offer if in fact it's passed. Wow. Um, anything that we haven't covered kind of on those topics, I mean, there's a lot of legal uncertainty around all this stuff, but anything that definitely you want to make sure that we convey to business owners and or employees right now? Um, I think we've covered a lot of information, but I would encourage, you know, both business owners and employees to go on the OSHA website um, and look at the information they have available. Go to the Department of the Colorado Department of Labor's website. There's information available. But, okay. um, you know, as an employee, you have the, your employer has to provide you with a workplace that's free from serious recognized hazards and comply with standard rules and regulations that are issued under OSHA. That's really interesting based upon the nature of the coronavirus and what's going on right now. So I would just encourage employers and employees to make sure that they're, you know, following safe practices and all of the guidelines that are available right now. The CDC is a great website for both employees and employers right now. And we will definitely include links to all of that stuff. I'm looking on the OSHA website right now with this um, publication that they put out. And, um, and the first sentence says, this is not a standard or regulation. It creates no legal, sorry, it creates no new legal obligations. It simply contains recommendations and descriptions 
of mandatory safety and health standards, which I appreciate that, that in this age of us trying to just institute best practices, we are not willy-nilly creating new legal standards or obligations on people um, until we have more information, which I think, like I said earlier, I think that's every employer's biggest fear right now is this misstep, even though they're trying to do the right thing. Um, One question that just came up for me when we spoke about discrimination earlier is I've seen several businesses posting signs on their front doors saying, please don't come in if you're experiencing any symptoms. You know, is that considered discrimination or can you put something like that up asking your customers not to come in if they have any symptoms of any sort of sickness right now? You know, that's a really good question. I I think that <laughs> you know, I, slow, huh? Yeah. It's um I've seen it on a lot of businesses lately too. I saw it throughout the winter just in response to the common flu and the common cold. Like if you're sick, please stay home. I think it's a courtesy. So long as you're not discriminating against somebody under the ADA because of an actual covered known disability or perceived okay. disability, I think that it falls outside of the discrimination categories. But again, it's evolving. Right. So right now we don't think that a positive test for coronavirus constitutes a disability for purposes of the ADA. We don't think it does, but we don't know. We don't have legal guidance for that yet. So technically you would not be per se discriminating against someone who has tested positive for the virus And it's more likely to be construed as a best practice by posting something on your place of business, asking people who are not feeling well to stay home. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, especially if it's applied evenly against the board. You're not targeting anybody. I don't Mm -mm. care if you have symptoms of coronavirus, you have a cold, um, you have strep throat that isn't even, you know, a symptom. Like just everybody be safe right now and stay home. I think that's okay. Okay. Awesome. Um, and if I think of some more questions on this and we've teed this up to Facebook too. So if I get a couple more questions that come in, I'll definitely, uh, round back with you on this stuff. Um, I, I definitely also want to talk about you and your history and your employment law expertise, and maybe we're going to end up closing with that. But the next topic I really want to consider is as I'm seeing people, um, being laid off or being temporarily laid off or being um, asked to work from home, the entrepreneurial spirit in me burns so bright that I think at this point, this is a beautiful opportunity for many people who are thinking of starting a business to do so, especially if it's digital or virtual or uh, video-based or delivery-based. And obviously another big area of your employment law specialty is the formation and creation of new businesses. So um, the, the first and simple question is, can someone start a new business with the assistance of, of legal counsel right now? Like, do we have the online capabilities to do so? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, you know, you have to decide the, um, Colorado secretary of state website is still up available and active. And that's where you would go. If you wanted to start a new Mm -hmm. business in Colorado, first step, go to the, um, Secretary of State's website. And then, you know, there are many steps in between, but one of the other steps you would want to do when creating a new business is to get your EIN, your employee employer identification number, and you do that on the IRS website. And we were just talking about that. We checked this morning. That is up ready and available as well. So if you want to, if you have a great business idea that has come from this horrible pandemic, then good for you. Now's the time. Go for it. Start your new business. That's exactly what I was thinking. And in the context, I was looking to apply for a new EIN, which is basically your company's social security number, employment, employer identification number online, which is an IRS feature. And the website is live as of this morning. And that's free to apply for an EIN. And then, as you said, the Colorado Secretary of State's website, um, that's where I always go if I have a new business idea because I always first do a business name search and make sure that no one else has either already doing it or using the same name. Um, And, of course, I also usually check like GoDaddy and some of the domain sites just to see if there's a similar company name or concept already out there. 
Um, but then obviously we start getting into the legal territory of deciding, do I start an LLC, a limited liability company? Do I start an S corp? I have certainly deferred to you for those decisions over the last years. And we won't, we won't go down the rabbit hole of making those decisions. But my specific question for you is, um, if they were to call someone like you or another lawyer, uh, mm-hmm. even if they're working remotely, this is something that uh, counsel could help someone absolutely get going like instantaneously, right? Oh, gosh, yeah. If you wanted to start up an LLC today, a limited liability company, somebody could definitely help you do that. And there could be a really quick turnaround. So if you have a great idea and you wanted to pounce on it today, theoretically, um, you could definitely get that up running and going, you know, today, if you have somebody who can help you do it within that kind of a time frame. Sure. But yeah, you just really need to have the idea. And then somebody can help you determine, you know, whether or not an LLC, an S corp or a C corp or some other structure is best for you, because that's where a lot of the considerations um, are really important and really come into play. And that's a determination you should definitely think about before you pull the trigger and go on the Secretary of State's website and actually get your business up and operational. Sure. And I mean, as of right now, banks are still open. So if you wanted to open up a new business um, banking account or checking account to get things rolling, that seems to still be a viable opportunity, at least for now, and probably could even be done over the phone or, or online, even if the actual local branches started closing um, so I think in that sense, it's a really exciting um, chance. And certainly I have uh, just launched a new kind of digital media company yep. where I'm helping co- uh, companies and businesses do their Instagram takeover because I personally believe that right now is a beautiful time to try and engage with your target customers and your staff. And if uh, you may not be able to actually do business right now, but I think this is a beautiful time to actually build brand recognition and really the community around your business. So it's been fun to be able to implement some of this Instagram work, which of course is something I can do remotely. And um, I want to give a plug for Jennifer's new Instagram account, which we just launched a couple days ago, which is so exciting. You can find her at Jen Lorenz Law. So she's there on Instagram and we're going to be um, featuring more and more about her and, uh, and more and more about these employment law questions as this virus situation continues to unfold. Um, and Jen, you know, obviously I've known you personally for quite some time. I feel like seven or eight years at least. Yeah. Uh, but will you tell us, I mean, you're just a wonderful human. You're just one of the most grounded people I have ever met, ever. You're just unflappable and consistent. And um, so tell us a little bit about you, where you went to college, where you went to law school, why you ended up choosing employment law as your area of specialty and where you're currently practicing. So I feel like this is a, this is a long story, so I'll keep it short. Uh, that's okay. You don't have to. <laughs> um, I went to Miami of Ohio for undergrad, and then I went to Wayne State in Michigan for law school. And then Doug, my husband, and I moved out to Colorado in 2006. So after law school, I moved down to Cleveland with Doug, and I was working for a law firm there, um, you know, basically doing the 80-hour weeks, working my butt off, totally burned out. And Doug was like, hey, let's let's not stay in the Midwest. Let's move to Colorado. So we moved out here. Thankfully, prior to the recession, and I started working for a law firm in Boulder, and that's where I really got into business and employment law. But um, it's not necessarily something or an area that I thought I would ever go into, but I'm so incredibly glad and thankful that I did, simply because it's an area that I really, really like. Um, it's really interesting. As you know, my family back home in Michigan, they own a bunch of businesses. So I was exposed to what it was like to own, operate and run businesses my entire life. So when I got into the legal side of it, it really was second nature for me. There were so many issues and considerations that I intuitively knew about just because of my upbringing that I don't think I would have known about had I not had the family that I did or that I do. Sure. 
So it's interesting. Sure. I can see a lot of things both from the legal perspective, but then also from the realistic operational perspective as well. Which frankly, in my opinion, makes you a far better fit as a lawyer because it's one thing to intellectually and scholastically study these topics and read about them in books and help a business owner implement them. But if you are a lawyer who's only ever been an employee who is attempting to advise and counsel business owners on business place management, uh, it's, it simply isn't black and white. It is very, very gray. There's a lot of heartstrings involved with employees and staff. And, um, and you obviously lived that with your family business ownership background. So I think it makes you a far more powerful and capable advocate. And certainly why I appreciate your guidance, because it's not as simple as just firing a bunch of people or terminating positions. It comes with a lot of, um, you know, heartbreak and angst, or it certainly can if you if you love your team. Oh, God, yeah. And I mean, a lot of times you, you know, you work with people, they become part of your family, you work with them for for years. I know my parents had people who worked with them for more than 30, 40 years. I mean, they literally become family. It's, it's not a black and white decision. Like you said, it is emotional, you are invested in your business, you're invested in your employees. And these decisions aren't necessarily just based on the law. Right, <laughs> right. Well, and if we look at the hours, many people spend more times with their bosses and coworkers than they do with their actual family members just hour by hour. So Absolutely. Um, yeah, that makes decisions really, really difficult. And certainly you've seen me struggle with some of those issues in my own business over the last few years. And even just recently in light of this virus situation, it is um, very heartbreaking and uh and so anyway, I, I'm just so thankful that you are who you are and you're able to give the advice you're able to give. And um, is it fair to assume that like most law firms that your firm right now has everyone working remotely, but that you're still actively working? Yeah, absolutely. As soon as all of this really started to develop, we decided to make the decision for safety purposes. I mean, solely for the safety of our employees to send them home, work remotely and do what we can. I would rather, you know, muddle through the telecommuting or sure. the teleworking over the next couple of weeks than expose somebody um, and potentially make something somebody sick. And it's, you know, it's not even just your employees, it's their family members and the people they come in contact to. So we just That's want right. to be hyper vigilant. And at the end of the day, yeah, it's not convenient. It's difficult, but we have the opportunity to do it. So we're doing it. Sure. Sure. Which raises a great point. Like many of us in the service industries have that capability, whereas those in retail and hospitality, obviously there isn't an option to work remotely using the bike shops again, as an example. Yep. Um, but I think that's, I think that's brilliant that those of us that can have decided to do so and work remotely. And we, um, we can still do capable legal work and legal services from from home, uh, which you're obviously doing. And so um, if people want to reach out to you, I will absolutely have your bio and your phone number and your email on our Maximum Enthusiasm website. Um, we'll also have a link to the Colorado Bar Association Find a Lawyer if someone is interested in contacting an employment lawyer in their area or in their their part of, of the state of Colorado. I can only assume that people in your space and your specialty are, are significantly overwhelmed right now. Um, do you have the sort of time and bandwidth to uh, advise new clients or new folks if there are people listening who would like to have your help? You know, I am fortunate that I have an excellent staff who helps me. Um, I have the most you know, wonderful staff that I could possibly hope for. And my firm, you know, it's not just me, there are quite a few of us. Cool. And, you know, it's, it's one of those situations where, as you know, as a business owner, when people need help, you help. Um, yes. You don't work, you know, nine to five every day, you work until the work is done. And that might mean working, you know, Monday through Sunday, one week, and then taking off the next week. It, it's not a nine to five job. When people need help, you do what you have to do to get the work done. 
I love that. And that's the reason I love you as well. Uh, and I also wanted to plug that you are the current president of the Boulder County Bar Association, right? I am, yes. Which is spectacular. So you are overseeing the Bar Association for Boulder County where you live and where you work. And that is not a small task or a small role. And I'm sure that just even helping lawyers in your community figure out what to do right now has been tremendously time-consuming and um, as a lawyer who looks to our local leaders and for guidance, thank you for taking on that position, which is, uh, uh, you know, an unpaid position with a lot of responsibility. <laughs> it's interesting. And, um, you know, we had a situation come up yesterday. So for the Boulder County Bar Association, we have workspace available, co-working space available, and we have co-workers. And we're shut down. We have two employees. We have an, an executive director and an assistant. And we said, you know, work from home. But the space is still open to co-workers and somebody wanted to come in to do a deposition. So we were wading through the issues of so how does that work? We're closed down, but we need to make the space available for depositions. But we also may have other coworkers in the space. What notifications sure. do we need to provide? So it really is. It's a constantly changing and developing issue. And we are all just trying to figure it out right now. You know, that's kind of one of the things that we love about law, though, too, right? That's the reason it's called the practice of law is that it has always from day one been designed to evolve based on society's needs. And obviously when the constitution was written, many of the future things that have been, <laughs> that have come up weren't contemplated then, but the law, you know, molds itself and evolves and grows and, and changes based on the needs of society. And so we're going to have all kinds of new case precedent that comes out of this situation. And um, I mean, that's part of the fun of it, right? Is that we're all just doing our best. Yeah. That's the intellectual part that really gets you going is that it's sure. constantly evolving and developing. Nothing's stagnant. Nothing really stays the same. Nope. That's why it's called the practice of law. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Jen, thank you so much for your time this morning and for giving us some really good, you know, literal advice for um, business owners and employees. And, and that said, I also want to add the asterisk because we are both lawyers that yes. this is not to be construed as direct legal advice for listeners until they have signed a contract with you or with me. We do not have a legal relationship in any way. This is simply an attempt to educate and inform people on, on basic concepts, but there is no uh, attorney-client relationship that has been formed through this podcast, and that's always really important for us to say since we are in the realm of legal discussion. Um, anything you want to add to that statement? No, thank you. That is very important. This is not intended as legal advice or guidance in any way. This is just me and Megan talking. <laughs> exactly. There you go. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, Jen, um, people can find you on the deetsanddavis.com website, which is D-I-E-T-Z-E davis.com backslash Jennifer dot, uh, dash Lorenz. I will have a link to your information on our website, as well as, like I said, resources for them to find other lawyers in their areas of town or in their areas of uh, expertise needs. And I just want to thank you so much for spending this time with me this morning. I hope to get the show up as quickly as possible so that we can get this information in everyone's hands while we all try to make sense of this crazy time that we're living in. Yeah. Well, this is, I think, a really important and interesting topic. So thanks for bringing it up. Oh, it is my pleasure. And for our listeners, again, make sure you check out her new Instagram page. Oh, awesome. Bye, Megan Hotman. <laughs> All right, girl. Thank you so much. Have an awesome day. Keep kicking ass and uh, living a life of maximum enthusiasm. That's right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Maximum Enthusiasm with Megan Hotman. Subscribe, check out our blog, and learn more at MaximumEnthusiasm.com.